0: Hey everyone, it's Rohan. Just a quick message to report that we've been listening to your feedback and understand that these long episodes can be quite time-consuming to take on board in one go. So to help combat this, we've split our next episode with Jeremy Robertson into two. The first part is talking about who he is and what he's about. And the second is taking a deep dive into insulin-dependent diabetes and its place in the cockpit, and then a bit more besides. Let us know what you think and let's dive straight into the episode. Three. So, hey everyone, my name is Rohan Sant.
1: And my name is Daniel Olaya. Thank you very much for joining us and welcome to another episode of the Aerospace Medicine Podcast.
0: So, our guest today is Dr. Jeremy Robertson. He's a doctor and pilot based in Australia.
1: Now, Jeremy's story is truly exciting. A former civilian pilot for Qantas, Jeremy was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 30, about six weeks before he was due to get married.
0: Now, the type 1 diabetes then meant that he was immediately disqualified from flying commercially. But after completing the engineering degree he was balancing with flying at the time, Jeremy looked towards a career in medicine, out of all things.
1: Fast forward a few years and Jeremy is now a qualified physician with interest in family medicine, aerospace medicine. He's been working with groups such as pilots with diabetes to improve prospects for diabetics in aviation. He's gotten so far that he's been granted a class one medical certificate from the Australian government, allowing him to be medically fit to fly commercial planes.
0: So it is our absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Jeremy Robertson to the Aerospace Medicine podcast.
2: Good evening. It's very nice to be here
1: how are you i mean what's going on where where are you right now lately what's what's your situation
2: well um professionally i am uh, a gp or general practice registrar at the moment so i'm working uh, four days a week in general practice and Mm -hmm. i'm also a a part-time aerospace medicine registrar so i tend to do uh, a day it averages out at about a day a fortnight at the moment uh, just doing uh, aviation medicine and uh yeah juggling the two keeps me busy. And then, uh, you know, personally, I'm married with two little primary school aged children. So, trying to uh, trying oh, to bad. stay an involved parent whilst uh, <laughs> <just>, uh, <laughs> training for medicine, uh, just that usual juggle, which I'm sure other doctors out there are familiar with.
1: Precisely. Uh, it's, it's interesting because we're in the UK, uh, myself and Rohan are in different parts of the UK, and you're in Australia. And we met each other virtually through social media before the aerospace medical association conference and i was looking for other people and you know looking to be inspired and i, I came across your instagram and i thought what's this and i thought okay who, who's this guy and the <laughs> first layer was of course you're a pilot uh, type one the type one pilot i thought this is really interesting and then i realized that you're a doctor on top of that and it really blew my mind <laughs> it really did i thought hold on so the pilot with type one diabetes that's one thing and then he's a doctor on top of that which is really interesting
2: yeah, my wife really struggles at barbecues when people ask her what her husband does. <laughs> um, he just sort of rolled her eyes and said it's too complicated and tries to change the subject.
0: And he's also got an engineering degree on top of that,
2: Daniel. So cool. Yeah, that's uh, that gets referred to as my hobby degree because I just did it because I was interested in it, but I've never actually <laughs> used it. Um, I don't know if I ever will. I think I've
1: run out of time. Hobby degree. I like. I like. I want to write that word down. Hobby degree. (laughs) I like that. I like that. So uh, I want to talk and get overview on your career so far, and you know, just get the top line on what's actually happened.
2: Um, All right. So my medical career or my flying career or or the or both.
1: Both. both. Tell us about the intersection and, and.
2: Yeah, well, I guess I set out in life to become a commercial pilot. That was my goal from childhood. So I I studied an aviation degree as my undergraduate degree and uh, worked as a flying instructor and as a a charter pilot out in Outback, Australia for a couple of years uh, and was just very lucky to have the minimum hours required to apply for Qantas at a time they were recruiting very heavily. Uh, So I got into Qantas just before my 22nd birthday, uh, which was... Yeah, quite young really to be mm. accepted wow. to a major airline, and I spent nine years at Qantas. Uh, firstly, as a second officer on the Boeing seven four seven four hundred, and then as a first officer on the Boeing seven six seven. So predominantly international flying, uh, with some trunk route domestic thrown in. And uh, in the latter stages of my seven six seven flying, I became involved in the flight technical department and was trained to do the the post maintenance test flying on that airplane. Okay. Fantastic fun, and that was what sort of sparked the the engineering interest, uh, and and Mm, the reason I started a an aerospace engineering degree. And I was just doing that, you know, one subject a semester around work at Qantas, and Mm. um, I didn't have any formal training outside of what Qantas gave me in test flying. So I'd actually enrolled myself in uh, an introduction to test flying course at the National Test Pilot School in Mojave, in California.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and
2: I was I was in California converting my license to an FAA pilot license uh, when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes Mm -hmm. so that was when that profession just ground to a screaming halt um, you know inside the space of one 20-minute consult and life changed directions enormously Uh, as you mentioned in the intro it was you know six weeks before my wedding Uh, I can't I just it was such a stressful time of my life but the engineering degree was kind of a saving grace in a couple of ways it gave me something to focus on with my professional brain Uh, so I finished that and that gave me some time to think about what I wanted to do professionally and I kept coming back to medicine Uh, so I thought well you know I'm, I'm in my early 30s I've got time to have a crack at this I'll just see how far I get and if I don't if I don't make it I'll just Go and be a simulator instructor for a little while. And <laughs> my plan. Um,
1: and actually, I love that. <laughs> Just the idea. You say, if I don't make it, I'm going to try. I'm going to have a stab at it. I've got time. Let's let's make it happen. Let's let's give it a shot. Yeah. Well, you know,
2: you, you only live once. So uh, I thought I didn't. I didn't want to grow old wondering. And um, and you know, to be honest, what what an enormous opportunity to to be you know, forcibly removed from a career. But to be given the opportunity to start from scratch, uh, you know, most pilots are very well insured against losing their medical. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I had the luxury of, of receiving a lump sum payout that allowed me to, you know, not work for a number of years. So, mm-hmm. you know, someone hands you this. You now, you can't fly anymore. You love that, but you can't do it. Here's an opportunity to go and do anything else you want. What do you want to do? Uh Wow. <laughs> and thought,
0: okay. it's a really nice intersection between um people can get really think that they're on one particular path but actually you you know even if you are having that big obstacle thrown at you you're able to take the best of that situation i guess and be like right okay what can i do and take some opportunities i think that's pretty awesome but i interrupted your flow a little bit please continue on <laughs> well, no
2: that's all right i mean it, it was just too catastrophic an event to for me to think about it any other way. Mm. You know, if I sat and wallowed and said, look, every professional decision I've made for the last 15 years of my life has been designed to get me into the front end of a, a heavy jet. And after all that work and all that money that I spent on my training, uh, this is one of the beautiful ironies, i just re- I just finished repaying my flying training loan uh, a month or two before.
1: Wow. wow.
2: You know, Um yeah if, if, I, if I dwelt on it I wouldn't I wouldn't have coped. So yeah I guess that was a big part of the coping strategy was I've got to put a positive spin on this and what are the opportunities? What can I do?
0: Sure.
2: Uh, and you know to be honest, to be paid five years salary and set forth into the wilderness uh, is a pretty unique opportunity. So,
1: yeah yeah and yeah. It's, it's great that you're, you're, you're grateful for that. you're looking at it and, and you're grateful that for an opportunity.
2: Yeah, I mean this yeah I was certainly angry at the time. Uh, yeah, there was a big uh, a big bit of adjustment that went on. Um, but I've met amazing people, I've done ridiculous things that I never would have thought I would ever do. And going back to the conversations at barbecues, um, you know, the small talk I can make is fascinating now. <laughs> it's not that often, that often. <laughs>
0: Makes a good Instagram story. Uh, so
1: yeah well i don't know I think it's not very photogenic i gotta say <laughs> when you um, do it a good job
2: uh, daniel you do a very good job well i take photos of airplanes
1: so that's how i make it photogenic um yeah so when you were diagnosed with diabetes was it a normal doctor was it a m e what type of doctor was looking at you at that point?
2: oh i'd just gone because i was in los angeles where i knew no one i was staying in a hotel uh, i just went to the okay. nearest medical center so it was a not only a doctor that i didn't know but a medical system mm. that i was entirely unfamiliar with um yeah and he had one listen to my symptoms polydipsia polyuria blurred vision fatigue um, mm. You know what the diagnosis is already. Yeah,
0: that's, and that's a past he, question, right there, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he did a, a finger prick glucose test, and my blood sugar level came back at twenty five and a half millimoles per liter, um, and that was you know five hours after my last meal. Mm. Uh, so yeah, he. Um, so. Yeah. So for people spot, who spot diagnosis.
0: Yeah. So for people who may not be from a medical background, essentially with diabetes, uh, very very briefly, diabetes difficulty controlling your sugar, and essentially as as Jeremy alluded to, twenty a sugar level of about twenty five milli millimoles is pretty 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 high. Um, let's just put it that way. Five
2: times normal. Yeah
0: exactly absolutely so uh, jeremy you were telling us a little bit about the you were telling us that you know you on this path now you're at medical school and then since then can you just tell us a little bit more and just give us the background summary yeah well?
2: um so yes four years at medical school because i did a a graduate degree um and yeah so in, in hindsight it was actually lucky that i'd done that engineering degree because that is what allowed me to apply to the graduate mm-hmm. degree uh, if i didn't have that recent tertiary experience i would I would have only been eligible to apply for an undergraduate degree, um, right. you know, applying based on my high school mark, which, you know, was not amazing, and um, and going through a six-year program with uh, with undergraduates. And that, that probably would have been enough of a barrier not to end up doing medicine. Um, so, yeah, fortuitous wow. to have the engineering degree and then into med school, four years at med school. And my... Two kids were born, my son was born just before I started and my daughter was born halfway through third year and the Mm -hmm. workload required to get through medicine with a young family put too much strain on my family. So I was very lucky that the opportunity to do my internship and resident years um, was available part-time. So I actually spent four years Mm -hmm. doing my, Mm -hmm. my first two graduate years uh, and that, mm. that was great because while the kids were really little, it gave me time to be, uh, be at home and um, you know, be involved. And as they grew and became a bit more autonomous, you know, going to preschool and, and primary school, it allowed me to pursue other interests, uh, which included aviation medicine and also getting back into flying mm. uh, to whatever degree I could, uh, I could get myself involved. Uh, so, yeah, fast forward to now. Mm. Were you flying during medical school? Yeah. So, the the first – when I was diagnosed, I lost all my aviation medicals, so no flying. Um, you know, I, I very quickly had my driver's licence reinstated. And based on my driver's licence, I was allowed to renew my ultralight medical because uh, it's based on the same standard. And so, that allowed me to fly light two-seat aircraft on a sunny day with one passenger uh, so a little bit of a cut down from the 300 seat mm. 200 ton jet but it was still flying and um yeah and one of my strongest memories was taking one of my friends uh light aircraft up at an airplane called a piper club which is a uh for any pilots out there they'll know that it's mm-hmm. it's one of those airplanes that pilots love and flying up one of the coastal beaches uh here in australia one evening with the window down and my elbow out And just thinking, (laughs) if nothing else, if I never get any other aviation medical back beyond this, you know, this is all right. I can still get up here into my happy place and uh, enjoy (laughs) from aviating. But I did, I clawed my way back to a class two medical. Uh, That happened about halfway through med school and that allowed me to fly privately. And then I renewed a few of my more technical qualifications, my multi-engine instrument rating uh, and based on the, the private medical, there was a bit more flying I could get involved in. Um, mm. So, yeah, off the Instagram feed, you've probably seen I've, I've been doing a bit of skydive flying, flying Cessna caravans, because uh, that would mm. be done on the Class 2 medical in Australia. And um, that requires an instrument rating, so, you know, to be able to fly in cloud in bad weather. Uh, and that that sort of got me the confidence back to go, hey, actually, I can do this. You know, I'm, I'm operating in a quasi Commercial environment, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm managing quite happily. Um, and that actually, that medical also allowed me to do flight instruction on the ultralights. Uh, so again, you know, sitting in a two seat aeroplane mm-hmm. teaching someone to fly is very, very similar in the ultralight world as to um, you know larger aircraft that people would learn to fly in traditionally. So again, it just gave me that confidence to say, "Hey, I'm. I, I feel like I'm operating." very close to a commercial environment here and I'm doing it safely uh, so
1: mm.
2: how can I how can I start building a case to the Australian authorities uh, to support this and you know evidence overseas helped that you know the UK protocol the Canada protocol where uh, mm. insulin dependent diabetics have been flying for a number of years that um, so all that was sort of bubbling away in the background whilst I was doing my junior doctor years Um and it, I did the qualification to become uh, an AME uh, in Australia. They're actually called DAMEs, uh, Dames. We won't pronounce it Dame because it just does, that feels a bit weird. Um, <laughs> but it's the same thing. I'm, a, I'm an aviation medical examiner, uh, and I've been doing that for the last uh, two years, uh, basically as a, a side gig to my yeah, my main employment. Um, and that's because of my background in commercial aviation, I found that I've I've got Quite involved in uh, in aviation medicine and a lot of a lot of different aspects that I didn't think would happen, uh, and that has I guess helped inform my decisions about where I want to go with the majority of my medical career. Uh, so I'm at the moment I am a GP registrar, but I, I can probably see that I'm going to end up working predominantly in aviation medicine.
1: How does how does that work the you know career path to do aviation medicine as a doctor and how were you thinking as you were you know a junior doctor were you did you have a set plan or were you just free flowing in your career and, yeah. and how did you get,
2: get more mm-hmm. the latter um, I guess because I got into medicine without a clear idea of where I wanted it to take me I I guess I just kept it kept an open mind, I kind of knew that I would always do my AME qualification because that just seemed like such a logical thing, Uh, if not the ultimate irony to be, you know, giving pilots their medical, uh, having lost mine. But um, uh, I didn't expect it to open so many doors. Uh, The pathway in Australia is slightly different, I think, to most countries in that to become an AME, the minimum qualification that is required is your general registration as a doctor and a two-week training course in aviation medicine. Uh,
1: Oh, right. Okay. That's that's quite different to the UK.
2: Yeah. So the the system here in Australia is very centralised. So um, at the moment in aviation, it's changed slightly, and I'll come to that, but when I did my course uh, as an aviation medical examiner, all you do is sit in front of the pilot, do the appropriate questionnaire and physical examination, collate that data and then submit it to the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and their doctors. And those doctors will be right. the ones that actually assess the medical and grant the medical. So Got th- it. traditionally, there's very little decision-making or responsibility on an AME in Australia. So that, that allows, I guess, not a, you know, a great depth of knowledge to be required uh, at an initial qualification level.
1: And could you give class ones and class twos? Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I'm not giving them. I'm just yeah, measuring the pilot, basically, and then got it, got it. Yeah, sending that info into the, the the doctors at Casa, and then they are the ones that issue the medical. Understood. Um, that's changed in the last two years, in that uh, AMEs who do an additional training course are now allowed to actually assess and issue class two medicals for. Private pilots, um, but still not the class one medicals for commercial flying. Okay. Uh, but there are there are sort of you know whisperings that Australia would like to move to a more decentralised system, which is what happens in the US. Uh, and I'm actually not very familiar with what happens in the UK, to be honest. Mm. Um, so that you know, an Ame will, if they pursue further training in the field will be able to issue uh, Class 1 and Class 2 medicals, so to speak.
1: Yeah. I'm really interested in why there's such a difference in the UK system and the Australian system and the US system. I mean, can you shed any light on that? Why are things slower in some places and faster and more progressive in other places? Why do you think that is? Yeah. I, I think it's probably not
2: so much to do with... Being progressive, it's probably more to do with our population density and our geography. Okay. Uh, You know, Australia, Central Australia in particular, relies heavily on aviation uh, and general aviation. Mm. Uh, One of my jobs as a pilot when I was working in that field was to be the postie uh, and I spent all day flying around nine small communities and I covered an area that was probably half – What's well, half the size of Victoria here in Australia, which is probably most of the size of Wales. Um, so I was the pokey for that entire area. <laughs> and in the area that I live, the town of 5,000 people, there's no way you would find a specialist aviation medical examiner uh, with the degree of training to issue right. a class one medical. So it, traditionally in Australia, it's always been a qualification that predominantly general practitioners have uh, because there's, you know, there are GPs in most small towns. And and that means that it's an accessible service for commercial pilots that are working out in the middle of nowhere, um, unlike the UK where, you know, you can drive for 15 minutes from one side of the country to the other. So, <laughs> you, you know, your, your access to specialist medical services is, is much easier. Um, and what we're seeing yeah. in Australia is actually that GPs, the old country GPs that are reaching retirement age, they're the ones that had the aviation medical qualifications and they're retiring, but the younger GPs aren't picking up that qualification mm. because it is actually wow. becoming more complicated and it is becoming uh, more of a time impost to actually gain the qualification. Um right. So one of my jobs that I've built for myself is I actually fly myself around four country towns in regional New South Wales and and I'm the AME for those towns once a month. Uh, because yeah, they I've don't have a website as well, yeah. yeah. they don't have a local AME and um their nearest one is you know, for some people it's an hour's drive. For other people I've had other people drive five hours to come and see Wow uh,
1: Wow you know,
2: Wow further west. <laughs> yeah. And you know that's a scale um,
0: that we can't even comprehend properly think, in the <laughs> UK.
2: Like just No, that's right. It's like yeah, I'm just gonna drive to Paris for my medical Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um it's it's and for people that live out in country Australia, they're just used to this. You know, I was, when this chap came to see me, I was gobsmacked. And he said, oh, no, it's all right. I've got a property that's about two hours away from here. So it kind of was convenient. Yeah, You know, he drove three hours to another property and then only had to duck over another two hours to see me. Um, you know, I have people fly in from further west to come and see me in those country towns as well. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's, it's an interesting thing that we're seeing here in Australia as far as the way that the profession is shifting uh, and i can see it becoming more specialized if they do end up moving to this decentralized system definitely
1: uh, mm. and i
2: think there's probably only so, going to be more work for me in country australia doing that sort of stuff
1: i have this picture <laughs> i have this picture in my head of you flying onto a remote island and you setting up a clinic in the airplane that people will step in and <laughs> you take them blood pressure, you do everything and they step out <laughs> with a certificate
2: yeah. it is actually um So if you, dear listeners, if you have a creative mental picture of me as an airline pilot with my, uh, you know, my sharp uniform and my little wheelie bag behind me, uh, (laughs) it's
0: it's,
2: it's a very small shift from that image to the image of me as a a flying AME. Um, I'm dressed slightly more casually, but I still have exactly the same wheelie bag. And instead of, you know, three pairs of undies and my toothbrush and a clean shirt, it's now got $5,000 worth of medical equipment in it and I can do on-site <laughs> hearing tests, ECGs, urinalysis, um, uh, you know, um, basic vision screening, you name it, and and I can. I, I fly to these small country towns and I generally will use either the local aero club or a flying school at the airport so I don't have to go into town and back again. Plus, pilots mm. are always happier when they're seen in their sort of natural habitat so I mm. can I can. I can just unpack my little bag, do a medical. If it's a class two, I, I can issue it as long as they pass, uh, and pack myself up again, hop in the aeroplane, and fly to the next town. So it it is. It's a very mobile, uh, transportable service, which I love
0: yeah that's really that's really cool to be able to to be able to go about and do that um and you've actually touched on a really interesting point i suppose in australia you've um alluded to the fact that because of the geography it's almost like a lifeline i, I imagine anyway that you know to have the aviation sector be be appropriately supported and make sure that mm. pilots are well qualified and able to perform the job that they need to do i did take a listen at one of your podcasts that you had done uh i think it was a few years back but you did say that aerospace medicine is a characteristically conservative field and I, I, I remember that point really stuck with me because actually if we think I, I agree with you and I think that there's a lot of evidence um, for that but actually that's not a useful way for the industry to be both for pilots and doctors I suppose you're kind of a prime example of somebody who's been trained but very effectively um, up to a certain point but then having everything taken away from you and you know economically it doesn't make sense um, from the amount of money that the aviation industry perhaps has invested in you as well as the time for you yourself. So I guess my question is that how can we help bridge that or how can we help combat that uh, within aerospace medicine? What attitudes and things need to change perhaps?
2: I think the answer to that is, is really just to be open-minded to, to evidence-based change and uh, yeah, that, that's a bit of a catch cry in medicine at the moment anyway. Uh, we love doing things mm. that are evidence based and uh to be honest that's that's really what the change has been here in australia that has, you know, propped up my submission for a medical, you know, whilst requiring insulin therapy. And, you know, I'd have to say that the last three principal medical officers at CASA have walked that fine line of being conservative and protecting the public safety, by also being open-minded to evidence-based change. And that can be seen in a, you know, a number of uh, changes of policy that have happened in Australia over the years. One that's quite topical at the moment is mental health. And Australia, you know, was mm. one of the, the, the first countries to uh, allow well-treated depression to remain uh, able to hold a class one medical certificate Mm -hmm. we've seen recent changes to color vision here in australia which uh, you know was actually led by new zealand recently Um, and yeah this recent change around insulin therapy uh, has been supported by evidence that's come out of what has been done in canada and the uk so i think yeah, there, there are different countries around the world that are open to the evidence-based change in certain areas. And, you know, they're the ones that I guess don't go out on a limb, but the ones that, that push for change in those areas and get them up and running. And then that itself creates its own evidence base that other, uh, you know, other administrations can base their decision-making on and move from there. So I think, I think, that, you know, aviation medicine is always going to be conservative because that's part of its mm-hmm. job. But as long as it's always open to, to, you know, to evidence based change and, and recognizing that change does occur in medicine, you know, we're always moving forward.
1: Yeah, um, no, I'm I'm really uh, touched by, by the stuff you said, and I think you know your point about Australia has its own needs for uh, DAMEs and it needs to cater for that in its own way. That explains really well how and why it's different to the UK and why the UK is different to the US. In the UK, for, for those listening and, and, you know, wanted to become an AME, the, the process is, is, is you do quite a lot. Um, and there's quite a lot of barriers in the way for a good reason. Um, so most AMEs are, are GPs. Uh, so that's through uh, the three-year training program or you can do the four-year training program um, after your, your house jobs. And... Doctors and other specialties need to get full CCT. So that means if you're cardiologist, if you're um, anesthetist on critical care, uh, you need to do your full CCT before you can actually become uh, an AME. I understand why it's there. And of course, you want your AMEs to, to be the best they can be. But given, you know, a shortage in AMEs, you know, I think it's, it's, it's time, it's time we look at that. I and mean, I really like how in Australia, you, you have that you know, capability to, to, to be doing the job at, at, at appropriate level to then pass the baton on. You know, I, I feel a situation like that in the UK would, would be nice so that more people could be doing interesting things. And also, the fact that a lot of people might look at it being AME as you know quite a static job, but your position, the way you 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 know engage in that in that role is nothing but static. You know, it's so exciting, you're flying around, you know, doing the job and, and that is great.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it is, it's a lot of fun. And um, one thing I didn't mention about the training here in Australia is that uh, the option has become available recently to to actually pursue specialist training in the field. So there is now an Australasian College of Aerospace Medicine. Okay. Uh, so I'm a registrar with them. They actually have a they have three full time registrar jobs where you rotate through the uh, the medical departments of a couple of major airlines and the regulator, or you can. If you work in an, mm. uh, an aviation or aerospace medicine role elsewhere, you know, with the appropriate paperwork in place, you can use that time to count towards the training. You know, when you gathered the appropriate experience uh, and you know, satisfied all the training requirements, you can do the exit exams and um, and qualify as a specialist.
1: And what position does that put you in as a specialist? What, what are you doing?
2: <laughs> That's the question. Um, look, I think you would probably... Be hoping to work for one of the major airlines in their medical department or, or with the regulator, uh, with CASA. And, um, there are a number of people that have set themselves up as, uh, I guess in private practice who still do the face to face assessment of pilots, but who also consult to various you know, parts of the industry. Um, and, and others that just do full time AME work. Uh, so it's, yeah, I think it's probably open-ended enough that you could make it what you want. Uh, as you said, in the UK, the, the majority of AMEs are GPs, and that's certainly the case here in Australia. Um, so I think it's something like 85% of AMEs are GPs here. And I think if you, if you did further training to specialise, because it's such a niche field, a lot of people would probably still have uh, another interest that they, that they involve themselves in professionally.
1: Mm. Mm. What do you say to uh, diabetics that you see when you're giving them, when you're examining them? What, what's, what's it like when you're talking to them? <laughs>
2: um, from an aviation medical point of view? or Yeah, uh, yeah. Or I in, mean, in, in just in the
1: conversation and, and what's the interaction? Like? Uh,
2: well, look, I, This probably goes for any person with diabetes that is interacting with a medical practitioner. They're just so happy to be talking to someone that understands uh, that has that lived experience of the disease. That is very useful because um, you know, and one of the things as an AME is you are always working on that pilot-doctor relationship barrier of pilots being terrified of you mm. because you can cancel their medical but not really wanting to be totally dishonest with their medical history because that gets them in trouble as well. So I think I, I find that with the, the people with diabetes that I speak to, then that it helps break down that barrier and uh, uh and they understand it yeah and we, we you know we compare management techniques and equipment and uh and things like that it's um yeah, that's the conversation i have with anyone with diabetes that i meet you know oh what what insulin are you on what uh do you use a cgm are you on a pump what yeah it's uh it's that little secret club <laughs> um so I, I yeah i don't find the, the the conversation with pilots is is hugely different but uh yeah
0: I think that's a really interesting and and really true actually. I think everyone in, as a patient is a little bit scared of the doctor um because as much as they want to know what's wrong with them they're a little bit scared perhaps of actually finding out. And I think pilots you've you've already inferred are a little bit more than that because it can affect their actual livelihood. Mm. Um speaking as obviously someone who's just graduated medical school do you think there's any sort of tips that you could give um to maybe current graduates whoever it may be to how to help essentially break down those boundaries and make sure that you're able to get the information that you need but also not be a frightening or threatening presence i guess i suppose you've had a bit more experience of that because you've been on both sides
1: Yeah.
2: yeah um i would say listen spend time listening to your patients be be empathetic to what they're going through you know put yourself in their shoes and um and lastly, just try and show a bit of humanity. Uh, you know, I'm—I always try and make a joke at my own expense, mm. and it just—you know—it shows that you're—you know—you're not this uh, godlike feature that's descending from above to mm. to uh, bite by- yeah. the and cure someone, and then rush off to the next person. You know, show that you're actually interested in who they are, and and show them that you're a human as well. I guess the other thing is don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Mm. Uh, I, I probably find myself saying that about 10 times a day at least uh, as a GP. Um, you know, I don't I don't know the answer to this off the top of my head, uh, but you know, we can work it out. Yeah. I can talk to other doctors. I can look things up. We can talk to specialists. Yeah, We can work together to solve this problem. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, people seem to respond well to that people can always tell when you lie, lying mm-hmm. so uh, just, yeah listen empathy
0: and honesty i and, suppose and a as bit well of humanity yeah.
2: But, yeah. yeah and yeah that's right you're exactly mm-hmm. right it's honesty
0: hey everyone thanks for downloading and listening to our podcast we hope that you gained a lot from it
1: and if you'd like to hear some more stuff like this much more, make sure you subscribe on whichever platform you found us. And if you like what you heard, drop us a rating too.
0: You can also give us a follow on our social media accounts.
1: We are at Aeromed Podcast on Instagram and
0: Twitter. And once again, that's at Aeromed Podcast on Instagram and
1: Twitter. Also, we'd like to hear your feedback. Of course, improve. So let us know your thoughts by emailing us at Aerospace Podcast at gmail.com. That's aerospace medicine podcast at gmail.com. Until next time though, thanks so
0: much again for listening. Stay safe, keep aiming high, and we will see you very, very soon.